I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of 16 separate books. Another one on the way, which will be her memoir. Uh, Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg here on the Florence Weinberg Show. Doc, how are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. I've been uh, incredibly busy lately with all kinds of strange things happening with my telephone connections, and I hope they don't happen in the middle of this, but we shall see. We'll we'll be all right. You had a big day on on Friday, and you had a big presentation on Friday. Give us a little... Give us a little taste of what that was like. Yes, uh, I was asked by the town of of Goliad, which is the anagram of Hidalgo. The, the town's original name was La Bahia, uh, and it was historically extremely important in the history of Texas because it was the way station uh, where people resupplied as they were on their way to New Orleans. And uh, and on the way back. Uh, but then when the revolution uh, began by F- Father Hidalgo to uh, uh, separate Mexico from Spain, uh, the town decided it was going to change its name to his name. Only they made an anagram and they dropped the H. Since in Spanish, the H is not pronounced in Hidalgo. And so it came out Goliad. And so this little town, which was historically important, but still a little town now, invited me to give a speech. And so I decided I would give a speech uh, on a character uh, who is uh, interesting because he is so strange. And, uh, and yet he is he's known as the great facilitator because he had so much to do with uh, Texas history, as, as it turned out after the Alamo. Uh, it, it began with Stephen Austin, uh, who brought in 300 families in 1821. And then uh, the great facilitator, this Baron of Bastrop, uh, was the one who uh, enabled the, Stephen Austin's plan to enable the plan to work. Uh, and so he, more than anybody else, is responsible for Texas blossoming into what it is now, wow. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in any case, uh, my talk is The Baron of Bastrop. The subtitle is Embezzler, Imposter, Hero. <laughs> Okay, are you ready to go with this? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, I since I gave this talk as a formal talk, what I'm going to do is to read it, but I will comment on uh, what I'm reading every so often if I think it uh, needs clarification or if there's something interesting to add. So here we go uh, as a reading. When someone mentions the name the Baron of Bastrop, the response ranges from blank faces to an unusually informed comment such as, oh, yeah, wasn't he the guy who had something to do with Stephen Austin back before the Alamo? As far as that goes, it's accurate, but I'm here to tell you more. Bastrop was typical of many immigrants to the New World. He was running from something in Europe that forced him to come here. He was born on November 23, 1759, in Paramaribo, Suriname, at the time Dutch Guiana. And then at the time, it was a tiny country located about the middle of the northern coast of South America. Now, most of us would never know where Suriname is. I certainly didn't. Uh, so I was a blank when that came, uh, when it came up. And now I'm not. (laughs) So it is about the middle of the northern coast of South America to the east of Venezuela. And everybody knows where Venezuela is because uh, it's been very much in in the news lately because it was supposed to be uh, its former president who was deceased at the time was supposed to have helped um, switch the votes from Joe Biden to uh, Donald Trump. The president of Venezuela. Uh, 
<laughs> dead. <laughs> okay, so going back to Bastrop, he was therefore a Dutch citizen. His father was a businessman. His mother had vague connections to nobility. His full name at birth was Philip Hendrik Nering Burger. The family moved to moved across the Caribbean and the Atlantic to Holland, where Philip joined the cavalry and received military training. In 1782, he married Lady Georgina Wilfelina Françoise Miklama Anierot in Oldenborn, Friesland, and Friesland was part of Holland, who bore him five children, four girls and a boy. To support his family, he became a tax collector, but his salary was evidently not sufficient to supply his growing family, and he began borrowing tax funds for personal use. In 1793, during the height of the French Revolution, he was accused of embezzling a large sum of tax money. The province of Friesland put a reward of a thousand golden ducats on his head, which indicates that his thefts must have been considerable. He fled with his family, boarding a ship in Hamburg, Germany, using the pseudonym Bastrop, which may be his own creation, since it has no meaning or reference, or else it may be an anagram for something else. And I have a feeling that his wife, who obviously, like his mother, had pretenses to, or maybe some real connections to nobility, suggested to him that he pretend to be a nobleman himself. And uh, so I don't think it it not have been his idea alone. So she gave him a a push there, I think. Uh, The the Bastrops arrived in Philadelphia at the end of the year, 1793. Philip had ambitions to acquire land, wealth, and prestige in a less settled area. He left his family behind and traveled west. And in 1796, he presented himself as Felipe Enrique Neri, Baron de Bastrop, to the governor of New Orleans, Francisco Hector Baron de Carondelet. It seems that Bastrop was an impressive figure of a man, tall, blonde, handsome, muscular, with a hearty be- with hearty behavior and polished manners, speaking perfect Spanish, Dutch, German, French, and probably by then English. His air of self-confidence and dignity worked well with people, including Caron Delay, who was born in Flanders, that's also, uh, uh, that's actually Belgium, uh, who also had Dutch and French connections. The two men hit it off. The governor took Bastrop to be the genuine article. He was impressed when Bastrop told him of the self-serving, told him one of the self-serving lies he repeated about himself from that time onward. He claimed that he was Prussian and had served in the army under Frederick the Great. The lie actually appears in his, quote, true biography, unquote, in the entry Bastrop in the Biographical Encyclopedia of Texas, published in New York in 1880. Bastrop, it, it was hard to untangle the lies from the truth, by the way, and people uh, s- still are fairly confused on the matter. Uh, and I had uh, I had access to uh, the Bastrop, the township of Bastrop's uh, full library on him, uh, and there were all kinds of things that uh, I had found out were not true. <laughs> but in any case, getting back to reading, Bastrop had a plan. He proposed to locate a colony somewhere north of New Orleans. He would gather families of French royalists. These were people who were loyal to the King of France, who was Louis XVI, who fled to the United States to escape the guillotine. Each family was to have title to 400 acres of land. They would raise wheat, and he would build mills and enjoy a monopoly on the sale of flour at New Orleans, Havana, and other Spanish ports. He promised not to use slave labor. Bastrop was ignorant of the fact that Louisiana overall was too marshy. 
Caron Delay, who was newly made governor and also ignorant of Louisiana's topography, granted Bastrop a territory of 144 square leagues along the Serd and Barthélemy bayous. Meanwhile, Bastrop's wife and daughters awaited his return somewhere in Maryland, where they had moved from Philadelphia. Documentation shows they were there in 1800. But meanwhile, Bastrop was off in search of colonists. He was dealing with Mexico, which at that moment had possession of the Mississippi River and all lands west of it. And I didn't know that either, that Mexico had uh, the entire country west of the Mississippi. Wow, I didn't either. Yeah. Uh, so that was 1800, uh, including New Orleans and Louisiana where the population was mainly French. According to Mexican law, his, co his colonists must be Roman Catholic, must speak Spanish, and own no slaves. However, Bastrop found very few who matched those uh, criteria, so he recruited any and everybody willing to come. In April 1797, he returned to Natchez on the shore of the Mississippi, the border between Spanish territory and the United States. Governor Calum de Ley had promised to transport him and his immigrants downriver to the Serd and Barthélemy bayous, but after waiting a month for a boat that never came, Bastrop bought a flat boat with his own money, $600, <laughs> and transported his 64 immigrants to the promised land. Later in the year, 35 more joined them, making a total of 99 when he had hoped for 500 families. <clears throat> Sometime during that period, Bastrop stopped at a roadside tavern and met a fellow traveler, young Moses Austin, dined with him, and the two made an indelible impression on each other. Austin was 31, Bastrop 37 at the time. That chance meeting would later prove to be a crucial event in the history of the Southwest. A series of misfortunes followed, too complicated to repeat here. His title to Carondelet's grant was contested. Aaron Burr later became somehow involved, though he never bought the land as had been claimed. Spanish fortunes were sinking fast in 1798, and Bastrop's grant was suspended. In 1800, King Carlos III, Charles III of Spain, traded all of Louisiana to Napoleon for land in Italy. Shortly thereafter, okay, so uh, this, this is what we know as the Louisiana Purchase. And this was um, actually, the purchase was made in 1803 for... 327 million 267,622 dollars and there were 530 billion acres of land in that purchase wow and it it really included the entire middle of the country right all the way it followed uh, the Mississippi River was was one border of it and the other rivers were the Sabine, the Colorado, the Arkansas, and so on, zigzagging up uh, the land mass until it reaches Canada and even a little chunk of Alberta and Saskatchewan, if you please. And all of that was sold to the United States by Napoleon uh, in 1803. So shortly thereafter, Napoleon sold Louisiana to the United States, including the lands and uh, the lands belonging to Austin and Bastrop. So that was called, uh, later called by the United States, the Louisiana Purchase. Austin stayed put, but Bastrop, feeling that barons were not in high favor in the United States in those days, moved west into Texas. By this time, his wife and daughters had moved back to Holland. They moved back in 1804. Waiting at the border of Texas were thousands of dissatisfied, land-hungry Americans who preferred to live under Spanish rule, having unpaid debts, crimes, both minor and major, and were disreputable for various reasons. 
1805, Governor Manuel Antonio Cordero y Bustamante had just been named to the position of governor of Texas. He, uh, he was confronted in Bejar de San Antonio's Casas Reales, in other words, courthouse, with a desk loaded with petitions from would-be immigrants. He was suspicious of them all, especially the Americans. However, Don Felipe Enrique Neri, Baron de Bastrop, didn't pause to ask permission, but entered Texas, hoping to find a home for himself and his family. He left 10 years of failure behind him, riding the old Spanish trail from Nacogdoches to Bejar de San Antonio, camping on the roadside at night since there, was no, there were no inns along the way. With him were three slaves and a French servant. They crossed the Colorado River at a place now named Bastrop. Obviously for him. He carried a petition from an empresario named Casa Calvo in New Orleans that proposed to colonize 500 families from Louisiana, including himself. Now, the, the term empresario, by the way, was a Spanish title for people who, first of all, consulted with the government, got permission, and then and not only did they get permission, they got uh, several thousand leagues of square leagues of land, uh, and they then went out and sold pieces of the land to prospective immigrants. And an impresario was supposed to make sure that the immigrants were of um, good character. Uh, that wasn't always the case, unfortunately. Right. Bastrop's petition proposed the immigration of a tribe of Choctaw Indians that he had bought. Now, uh, up to this point, I think the man still had a lot of money that he had embezzled from tax funds in Holland because he was able to buy things like $600 for a boat to take his colonists downstream. Uh, and he bought the whole tribe, the Choc Choctaw Indians. Of course, they didn't know. Uh, what money was really worth in those days, so he probably got them for very little. But even so, the man had money. Um, so his proposal also asked permission to take wild horses off the prairie to provide transport for his colonists and the Indians into Texas. Apart from the petition, Bastrop also included his own letter informing Governor Cordero of what he thought of the Americans in Louisiana. He denounced them as daring, land-hungry, lawless, ruthless, and generally infamous with nefarious designs on Texas. Cordero believed him and sent a copy of the letter to the authorities in Monterey with a recommendation that Spanish troops guarding the Louisiana border be increased. Bastrop was granted permission to bring his settlers and his Choctaws into Texas. He returned to Louisiana to fetch them, but failed to convince them to come. None of them was looking forward to moving to Texas, apparently. It was unknown territory, and the threat of the Comanches was very real at the time. He was also refused permission to export any horses across the Texas border. A year later, Bastrop returned to Bejar, that is San Antonio, hoping to open trade with the Indians with a base in Bejar and to trade Texas horses for goods in Louisiana. But the governor, Cordero, refused to consider this plan. On his travels up and down the Camino Real, this is the... Uh, the route established, the Royal Road that was established in the 17th century by the Spanish, Spanish uh, invaders, uh, pioneers, uh, conquistadores, whatever you want to call them, um, that runs through right through the middle of Texas. Uh, he stopped in what is now San Marcos and was dazzled by the beautiful springs there. He asked permission to settle there, but this also was refused. He ended up in Bejar, tolerated because he was not American, but a, quote, Prussian nobleman who had fought for Frederick the Great. <laughs> he finally bought a modest stone house 
were in the San Antonio River, where he lived for the rest of his life. He made his living hauling goods and supplies for the Presidio, that is the fort, at Bejar from the interior of Mexico, mostly from Monterrey or Saltillo. <clears throat> at that time, Texas, never heavily peopled except by Comanche, the Apache and other Indian tribes had been further depopulated by American adventurers seeking land and wealth at the expense of the inhabitants. A major attempt to wrest Texas from Mexican rule was the so-called Republican Army under General Augustus McGee, actually a lieutenant who had graduated from West Point. He gathered an army in Louisiana, recruited Mexican partisans of democratic government in Texas, and conquered Nacogdoches, which is a large, largest uh, town in, the, in northeast Texas. Um, <clears throat> he conquered Nacogdoches first and then moved on to La Bahia, today Goliad, gathering more men as he went. The Royalist Army from Bejar there for months, but they were finally driven back. In 1813, a trained royalist contingent was mustered on Mexico City, which mar marched north to quell the rebellion. Its commander was the Spanish royalist general, a real general, named Joaquin de Arredondo. The revolutionary army, now some 1,800 men, clashed with 2,000 trained soldiers and suffered a disastrous defeat. Arredondo and the Royalist Army was, was out-and-out out winner of the Battle of Medina just outside San Antonio in 1813. After the battle, in which Arredondo slaughtered the entire 1,800 soldiers of the Republican forces, leaving their bodies on the battlefield to rot, he killed all men over 16 in Bejar de San Antonio. Young Lieutenant Santa Ana was with the general at that time and learned how to deal with captured enemy soldiers, new small of them. Arredondo then went through the rest of Texas, killing anyone he suspected of revolutionary sympathies, and I think that meant anyone over 16, any man. And uh, however, the Baron had been there since 1803, and yet he was unmolested. And of course, he was. Fortunately, he was calling himself the Baron, the Baron of Bastrop. And so Arredondo could not imagine that he was not a royalist sympathizer. He was noble himself, of course, <laughs> supposedly. Right. So he got away with, uh, with everything, no matter what was happening in Texas. He sort of skated over the surface of it, uh, to, uh, actually to the benefit of Texas, as we shall see. After 1813, the population of Texas did not grow since women and children do not reproduce. At the same time, Nacogdoches had a population of 700. At that time, I'm sorry, Nacogdoches had a population of 700. La Bahia had 600, and Bejar de San Antonio had 2,500. It was the big town and the capital of Texas at the time. Land-hungry Americans were undaunt undaunted by the mayhem in Texas, and around 1815, a certain Dr. Long raised an army of filibusters, which mean, meant at the time bandits and grifters. And now it means something else. Um, but at the time, it meant also pirates. Yeah. Pirates, bandits, and grifters hoping to conquer Texas. They entered Nacogdoches, where the bandit soldiers drove out the population and plundered the town. Two years later, in 1821, Stephen Austin found only 22 people living in Nacogdoches. He commented that it had been destroyed by the revolution, quote-unquote. Long's army proceeded to La Bahia, but the Royalist army ultimately defeated them and escorted them under guard to Mexico City. During these upheavals, as Bejar was successfully occupied, successively occupied by royalists and then revolutionaries, the Baron of Bastrop calmly carried on his business unmolested. He never became rich again, never brought his family back from Holland, 
but he was respected and even took part in the government and helped um, helped uh, rule the city. In 1820, Moses Austin, now 53, rode into Behar with a carefully prepared petition to present to the Spanish governor. Like the barons, his enterprises in Louisiana had failed, but he still hoped to succeed at another colonial venture, to, namely to settle 300 families in Texas. General Joaquin de Arredondo, the one who had slaughtered the Republican Army of Texas seven years earlier in 1813, and afterwards had killed any fighting age male in Texas, suspected of, of Republican sympathies, he was now posted in Monterrey as sort of a uh, super governor. He had recognized that immigrants from the United States were most likely to be anti-Mexican, and so had ordered that they be refused permission to enter. The governor of Texas, now Antonio Martinez, aware of Arredondo's orders, refused even to look at Moses' proposal and threw it and its creator out of the office. Moses, exhausted and discouraged, was crossing Main Plaza to mount his horse and leave when he saw a tall figure in the middle distance. The tall figure halted in mid-stride, then came towards him. It was the Baron de Bastrop whom he had met and liked 20 years earlier. After they had embraced like long-lost brothers, Bastrop asked, what on earth brings you to this godforsaken part of the world? I wanted to bring 300 families into Texas. You and a lot of others, tell me more. Moses quickly told the Baron that he was a Mexican citizen in good standing, that he did indeed have 300 families ready to immigrate into Texas and that he had detailed plans on how to settle them. Bastrop was immediately interested with his own ambition to settle families in Texas rekindled. He invited Moses to his little house to discuss the matter. They spent the afternoon going through Moses' proposal. Bastrop, 61 years old at that point, was known to everyone in Bihar and trusted as an upstanding citizen. He was universally liked. He took the proposal and went to see the governor the next day, <clears throat> explaining that he knew Mr. Austin, who was a trustworthy person with a sound proposition. Governor Martinez knew and trusted Bastrop. He also knew that Texas desperately needed good citizens to help fight the Comanche. He therefore read the proposal and forwarded it to Arredondo with his recommendation that it be granted. It was ratified on January 17, 1821. The approval of Moses Austin's proposal and the later success of Austin colonists were entirely due to the influence of the Baron, who devoted his remaining years to supervise and further the project in any way he could. Moses Austin, already sick and exhausted from the hardships of travel in the wilderness, died not long after he, his return home. His dying wish was that his son Stephen, 29 years old at the time, continue his project to become the guide and leader of the 300 families. Stephen appeared in Behar in August 1821, met with Bastrop, and the two filed the written plan for the location of the colonists and the distribution of land. Bastrop may have translated the document into Spanish, for he endorsed it, Baron de Bastrop. The ultimate land grant per family was for a labor, which means 177 acres specified for farming. That was a lab, the labor, the labor uh, meant farming, plus a league, which is uh, 4,128 acres for pasturage. If you can imagine a farm that or a ranch that size, 4,128 acres plus 177 for farming. Governor Martinez named Bastrop by then vice mayor of Bihar, uh, Segundo Alcalde was his title, to be commissioner. And in August 1823, the Baron and Austin rode to Silvanus Castleman's house on the Colorado River, where the people were assembled, the 300 families, to receive their lands.
Bastrop as commissioner, now 63, and Stephen Austin then issued titles to the colonists. All titles, <clears throat> all titles bore the baron's bold signature. He and Austin then went in search of a proper location for a capital town for the colony, and they chose a spot in what is now Austin County and named it San Felipe de Austin. This remained the official headquarters until the revolution. The following year, 1824, a constitutional convention in Mexico City drew up a new constitution modeled on French Enlightenment ideas, but that was very close to the Constitution of the United States. All Mexican provinces were to become states, each with a governor, a Congress, with House and Senate, a judiciary, and its own militia. Texas, however, was judged too sparsely populated to be able to sustain itself as a state. Very much against the will, <clears throat> very much against the will of the Tejanos of that time, that is the, the Mexican citizens of that time, it was combined <clears throat> with Coahuila, the capital, moved to Saltillo, which is down in, still in Coahuila, um, down in Mexico. The Baron, the Baron writes to Austin. So uh, he wrote to Austin, the Baron. Um, you will soon receive an order for an election of a representative to the provi provi Provincial Congress. I believe the committee will elect me as a representative of the people on the Brazos and the Colorado. Many want me to go to the Congress, and if I had anything to live on, I should accept it, as I am familiar with all this business. The business of slavery is before Congress. And this is, of course, one of the main points about Texas, yes. whether it was allowed to have slaves or not. In a later letter to my dear friend and master, as, as, uh, um, as the Baron, as Bastrop uh, addresses Austin, he repeats, it may be they will elect me to the Congress, but I believe I must decline as I am without means of subsistence. If I had means of living there, I would accept with pleasure. I realize the necessity of sending someone who will take an interest in the province of Texas, one who is acute and will not be dominated by delegates from other provinces who can take advantage of the rivalries among them, among them for our benefit. It is very important that Texas have a governor who is an instructed man of moderation. If an unbalanced person is chosen, we are lost. Then he adds requests of a personal nature. Don't fail to send me the powder and tobacco for the Indians. Blue cloth, vermilion, and other things I have asked you for. There is no necessity for me to tell you what I want to do with these things. Don't forget the horse. Send me one with a good gait, for I need him badly. From this, we know that the Baron is in a state of extreme poverty. If he is to represent Texas, he needs the blue and red cloth for clothing to clothing befitting his status, especially a cape uh, with a blue outside and vermilion inside. Um, and of course, I'm speaking to uh, people in <clears throat> in Goliad, and they produced a very nice flyer for this talk. Uh, and it had a picture of the Baron, of course, probably a fictitious one. Right. But uh, as I say here in the paper, his portrait on the flyer you have received for this lecture gives you an idea of how he needed to be dressed. And of course, he is dressed in formal clothes, um, a white tie um, with a cape over one shoulder and a very handsome fellow with white hair. Um, which he probably was at the time because he certainly impressed people. Yeah. From later correspondence, we know <clears throat> that Stephen Austin did supply him with adequate money, goods, and horses for his needs. Now, Stephen was getting money from his uh, colonists. They were paying him fees, and he had something over $2,000 at the time, and, it, and that, was, uh, that was like $2 million probably sure. nowadays. Tons of money. Yeah. 
So when um, when uh, Bastrop entered the legislature in Saltillo, he was decked out in a new suit, new shoes, and an elegant blue clo cloak with a vermilion lining as befitted the baronial status everyone believed him to occupy. Some of the laws he sponsored and bills he helped pass were the following. A law for the registration of marks and brands for cattle. A law to prevent the killing of deer and wild horses for their skins. A statute for jury, jury trials. A petition to allow the settlers to raise tobacco. In this he failed since a monopoly had already been granted to the province of Orizaba. The colonists raised tobacco anyway, and there was a lively illicit border trade with northern Mexico. Another law he uh, he sponsored was a petition, or rather, uh, here it's a petition, a petition to establish a port at Galveston, which was done. A petition for better law enforcement in borderlands against filibusters and hostile Indians. He wrote to Austin, and I'm quoting him, there is much opposition here to Texas. I must get the votes pledged before I present anything for consideration. Perhaps his crowning achievement was his colonization code. Each acceptable impresario, and I name some of them, the names may be familiar, Green DeWitt, Hayden Edwards, and General Wilkinson, for example, would receive five leagues for his reward. That's thousands of acres. Each, colon <clears throat> each colonist would receive a league and a labor, for which he paid 30 pesos. <laughs> um, a Mexican coming to Texas to live. Now, a Mexican was treated specially. He could get as much as 11 leagues. The colonist could select his own land and was exempt from all taxes for 10 years. But slavery was the most controversial issue. The early colonists had brought their slaves into Texas as part of their property. No one questioned that. But the Coahuiltecans were opposed to slavery, considering it an abomination. They thought to abolish slavery in the state, which included Texas. This would have ruined Austin's colony and those of the other impresarios, which depended upon slave labor, because most of them were uh, raising cotton, by the way. Yeah. And cotton raising is a terrible uh, task for any farmer and uh, and black people were able to uh, survive the labor required better than any others. The Indians just died, and white people don't want to do that kind of work. So um, slave labor was necessary, uh, Austin, the, Austin's colony believed. So finally a compromise was reached. Slave designated as indentured servants. Children would be born Texas accepted this, but enforcement was never strict, and the real status of the slaves continued as before. In a letter to Austin in 1824, Bastrop wrote, It is necessary to be patient. I'm quoting him here. After four or five years, when we have 100,000 people in Texas, we can give them the law as they now give it to us, or we can separate from them. You may rest assured I have pulled every wire I can for Texas, unquote. Brown Austin, Stephen's brother, was in Saltillo watching the Congress in action. He wrote, quote, the old baron has strove hard for us. I know not what would have been our fate but for him, unquote. In his last letters to Austin, Bastrop signs Philip Enrique Neri without the title, since all titles of nobility had been abolished. The constitution for the state of Coahuila y Texas was almost finished when Bastrop left the hall feeling ill. He never returned. In his will, he writes, I am Philip Henry Neri, aged Baron of Bastrop. I am ill and confess all the dogmas of our Holy Roman Church. I was married churchly fashion with Georgina Nyholt, Baronet of Nylonsberger, and have been a widower since 1811. 
So she went back to Holland in 1804 and died not long after. He gives the names of four daughters and one son. I do not know if they are married, for it has been many years since I have heard news from them. I declare that all my property in Holland was confiscated in 1795, but was restored to my wife in 1808. Although he claims territories in Louisiana and a cattle ranch in the Guadalupe Mountains, the only property provable, provably his, uh, was the strip of land along the San Antonio River in Bejar with a little stone house. He was given a solemn funeral and a proper burial in a handsome new black suit. That night, a Mexican grave robber disinterred him and was stripping his body of the suit when the baron's arm fell and smote him a heavy blow. The robber fled in terror and confessed what he had done. He is supposed to have died of fright that same night. Bastrop was properly reburied, and Stephen Austin and members of the legislature paid for all medical and funeral expenses. And so passed a pivotal figure in Texas's history, Felipe Enrique Neri, alias El Baron de Bastrop, who had used his embezzled money to establish himself and his family in the New World. He spent it all on ill-conceived projects and ended his life a pauper, but his false identity as a baron from Prussia was never doubted and served him well throughout the remainder of his life. His final effort, however, made him memorable. Two chance meetings began it, one on the Mississippi at a wayside inn when he met Moses Austin. Another 20 years later, as Moses was about to mount his horse and leave Bejar de San Antonio in Texas forever. But for his solid citizenship of Bejar, the capital of Texas, which earned him the position of representative in Saltillo at the state congress, Texas would have been slighted, its rights and privileges ignored. The liberal colonization law that he drafted in Saltillo enabled other empresarios, including José Antonio Navarro, to bring in and settle hundreds, nay, thousands of settlers. And José Antonio Navarro was one of the two Mexican signatories of the new Constitution of the Republic of Texas. So he is justly remembered as an important figure in history. But, of course, we're talking about Astrop here. Uh, ironically, it was the successful influx of Anglo citizens that brought down the fury of uh, President and Generalissimo Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who intended to drive them out and purify the state. He failed, and Texas blossomed into what we see today. Governor Martinez wrote to the government of Mexico and of Texas in 1822, Baron de Bastrop, who has been under the protection of the Spanish government 27 years and in this province 17 years, has maintained a humanitarian attitude towards all and has performed interesting, loyal, and confidential services for both Spain and Mexico, as the records will show. Unquote. A fitting epitaph for the great facilitator and godfather of Texas. Wow. And that, that is the paper. And That's terrific. Really terrific. And, and I had a good discussion going afterwards, and people stayed around for about an hour afterwards. <laughs> After which, uh, we adjourned to a Mexican restaurant and had a good meal. <laughs> So this whole adventure in uh, in Goliad was a success. And at the same time, I thought that this uh, would be interesting as frontier history, really, because it involves the Louisiana Purchase. It involves uh, what territories belong to uh, Mexico and what to the United States. And, and then Napoleon, of course, uh, intervened there. And so the United States then acquired this enormous, enormous uh, over uh, five million acres of, of new land in one fell swoop. Uh, and so uh, then this extended the United States enormously uh, in one one day. Uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, to with believe one, it. 
with one sign of a pen with that. with one sign yeah with one signature namely napoleon's yeah. <laughs> just amazing and and bloodless well it's not bloodless because the uh, indians of course were slaughtered uh yeah. because of this but uh but anyway it's uh, it, what what a what a story uh well done doc and uh you know one of the things you know that comes across in there you know, of course, he was a con man, or, or, you know, a, a fraud yeah. in many ways. But um, in this particular case, we're all indebted to uh, yes. a con man without, by the way, I mean, a lot of different uh, shoes dropped afterwards. Uh, of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln, thank God for him keeping the union and, uh, and, and keeping it intact, uh, because we don't know what would have happened with either world war. Um, if, uh, if, if the South, right. I mean, just think about it. If the South would have uh, survived that, but I mean, if we didn't mm-hmm. have it in the first place, uh, there's a, right. there's a good chance that, that, uh, Europe would be speaking German, uh, from, that's right. From uh, every stretch of the, uh, stretch of the, the continent. And, um, and also, um, you know, I mean, this is the, the follow-up to it without Lincoln, uh, winning his election and winning his war, if McClellan would have signed uh, signed a deal with the the South or cut a deal to to somehow um, keep the South or the Confederates in uh, in place, uh, they might have sided with Hitler. You know, if uh, if the Second War was to take place, I mean, it's um, you know, you're talking about uh, a, a lot of ifs there, but our country. Is uh, is is in a, a great way. Um, we're indebted to scoundrels and to mm, you know yes. to people. And by the way, he doesn't sound. I mean, whatever he did in 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 uh, uh, in uh, uh, on European soil, he did. But here, he sounds like he was an upstanding citizen and a, a real yes, statesman. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah. So except I mean, that he kept he, he lied about his background, uh, and of course uh, took took a no. Uh, a title of nobility, um, but uh, he Thank must God have he learned did. a lot. Thank God he, he must did. have, yeah, and he learned a lot from his mother and his wife, both of whom had noble connections. So they were able to, to as a boy, I'm sure they were t- teaching him how to behave. Then um, uh, the heirs to uh, to put on as an, a, a vaguely noble kid, you know, half on the mother's side and on the grandmother's side. So. Uh, so I think he he was well prepared by the men, the women folk uh, for the role he assumed as the Baron of Bastrop, um, and he certainly carried it off because people just took him at his word, all of them, uh, and he was personally uh, such a an engaging human being anyway. Uh, so uh, no. I think uh, con men need to be <laughs> no, right, engaging no, people. <laughs> no doubt. And and I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, it's from a practical standpoint, there's a philosophical question to be uh, to be asked. What what is the what is the good of nobility? If nobility is supposed to lead the way or is supposed to show leadership, uh, then this guy truly was a baron. <laughs> this guy was truly. A, yes. This was a this was a royal. This is better than royal blood this was true leadership what he uh, what he showed it's it's really an amazing thing and the end in this particular case and i'm not saying in it in all cases but the ends justify the means yeah yeah true but ironically i wrote which is called before the alamo uh was about the people who lived in texas before this huge influx of anglos and there were thousands of Anglo's in Texas um, almost immediately when it was uh, when it was opened up by Stephen Austin and uh, uh, and all the other impresarios who ganged uh, who, who crowded around to get uh, uh, chunks of land, huge, vast chunks of land from uh, from the governor of Texas uh, to sell it off uh, to Anglo settlers. 
And the settlers were not all nice. There were a whole bunch of filibusters, in other words, uh, thieves and pirates and robbers and so on, who came. The book I wrote was to praise the people who f actually founded this state and, <laughs> and who had a good government. And they had laws. They had, uh, they had everything. And yet the Anglos who came in have treated them like dirt, called them greasers, lazy, louts, and, and on and on and uh, and have uh, really taken over and hardly ever acknowledge that there were people here before who spoke Spanish and, yeah. and who had a European culture. I mean, it was a Spanish culture that they had here. They had already imposed that on the Indians, but uh, but of course they get no credit at all in Texas or hardly ever. It's an afterthought. And that's why I wrote that book before the Alamo to prove that. Uh, but I'm not selling, so uh, people are not going to learn about it. And the ironic thing is that here I am praising one of the guys who guaranteed that there would be an Anglo takeover of, of Texas. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, the world is full of ironies. And, uh, and, and guess what? Uh, uh, one day, one day when people are, are more interested uh, at the at the moment, we're distracted. The country is distracted by a lot of things. But when, uh, yeah. when people are are more interested, maybe long after you and I are gone, uh, right. before the Alamo will be a, a, a big hit somewhere. Another, <laughs> it's, it's your it, it's your job to write it, and I guess it's it's our job uh, on the other end to uh, to make sure it's in print and that uh, that all of these wonderful books of yours are. Are, are here for a hundred years for uh, the people to discover them. So, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> people hearing these these uh, these conversations we have um, uh, will hear these a hundred years uh, from now and and say, you know what? Hey, uh, Doctor Florence, buy him Weinberg. Let's uh, let's let's get one of these uh, Florence Weinberg books and uh, let's uh, let's turn it into this or turn it into that. And and you just never know. You just never know. That's for you sure. Know. Yeah, you, you, you never seeds. do. You got to plant the seeds and hope they uh, hope they sprout. Yep. Well, you have done a good job of that, uh, of planting seeds all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, listen, great job on this. I'm I'm sure that what a treat for those folks on Friday, and what a treat for us here and everyone listening. Uh, Doc, uh, great job. Thank you very much Thank for you. sharing all of this. Yes, well, I'm glad I could share it because I put a lot of effort into it. So uh, a lot of research. <laughs> now, the uh, Bass, uh, the yeah, Bastrop uh, Public Library just opened everything, all their files, yeah. and uh, uh, and the uh, so I was able to put together something that I think is is really factual about this man. Oh, terrific. I mean I've never I, I've never heard of him. I'm I'm ashamed to say I've never heard of him. What an amazing story. Uh, great yeah. great piece of research on your part and the literature is just great. Um what a what a biography of not only him but uh Texas, <laughs> the country, the yeah. Louisiana purchase. This is just right. well well done. Doc, great job. Thank you very much, and we'll see what I have to offer you next time. <laughs> it's always fascinating. Frank McKay uh, signing off, and to all of you, please uh, binge listen to everything that we've done here. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Florence by him Weinberg, and uh, we'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.